Welcome to Capital Close-Up on WKXLAM and FM. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out uh, Beyond Politics podcast. Um, we're doing some great stuff and our subscriber base is growing. So thanks to all of those who have subscribed by podcast. Today, we're talking to one of our favorite raconteurs and guests, the award-winning journalist, Kevin Landrigan. Kevin um, knows, knows New Hampshire like the back and front of his hands, having covered uh, the State House for a long time. Kevin, welcome back to Capital Close-Up. Great to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. So the um, New Hampshire legislature ended its session recently, and there were lots and lots of bills signed by the governor, about 29, I believe, and a number of interesting vetoes. Along the way, uh, two of the bills that uh, the governor vetoed were the bills passed by the House and Senate that would have redistricted the two congressional districts uh, right. basically trying to basically throwing um, uh, Congress um, and Pappas and Congress uh, representative Custer into the same district and moving an awful lot of towns. And uh, that set up um, that set up a, a, essentially a battle in the courts. Where, where have things ended up and what has yeah. the Supreme Court of New Hampshire done? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, well, um Last Monday, the Supreme Court unanimously approved a uh, a map that had been produced for redistricting the two districts um, from a Stanford law professor that they had, that the court had hired, um, former Speaker Terry Norelli and some other Democratic activists. As soon as the governor had said to the legislature, "I'm going to veto that map," they filed suit and they said to the court, "Look, you've got you've got to step in here." and get this job done if they won't do it since the filing period um, opens opened last Wednesday. So um, I should say on Tuesday, the day after the holiday, the court approved uh, their experts map, which made um, very minor changes to the due districts, moving five towns um, from Chris Pappas's district into Annie Custer's district because her district is roughly 9,000 people smaller than Chris Pappas's district after the 2020 census. And um, these are towns in uh, the Upper Lakes region and just the Southern part of the Mount Washington Valley. So towns like Albany, uh, New Hampton, Campton. I mean, they're not, household name towns in New Hampshire because it's so small, right? Um, and uh, um, they, moved, actually, they moved Sandwich. Yes, Sandwich. Sandwich was the largest town right. of, of the five towns. And, and because, uh, um, and on balance, uh, they moved more Republicans than Democrats in those five towns, but not by a lot. Right. Um, And this map that the expert ended up with essentially a perfect population as can be. Our population um, 
ends in an odd number, actually, according to 2020 census. So what, we, what, he, what the expert ended up with was one person more in the first district than in the second district. That's, that's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. That's, that's, yeah. that's good. That's good. That's good work. Yeah, that's the work. That's good work by an expert. Now, um, I think we also found out in this whole process that didn't get a whole lot of attention that we didn't need to pay this guy because obviously, <laughs> you know, the court in its budget paid this guy and probably in the area of five figures paid this guy. I would imagine he got 40, 50 grand anyway to produce this map. And why do I know we didn't need this expert? I know that because of the court filings by both sides leading up to the expert being hired. Sure enough, in late May, from the speaker and the center president's lawyers came this map that they had proposed. And this map was one of the maps that the, that the governor rejected. It was one of the two maps. So, okay, which moved in the order of 50 towns and about 350,000 people, towns or city wards. And, but in that filing, and remember now, this is before the expert comes out with his map. In yeah. that filing, the lawyers for the speaker in the Senate president said, well, we have this other alternative. If, if, because the court has already said when they hired the expert, look, expert, even before you're hired, we're only going to approve what is called a least change map. And that's kind of, that, that goes back to a lot of case law, which is to say, courts, yes, you have an authority in the area of redistricting to do the job when the legislature can't do the job. But your role should be to make the least change necessary to do that job. In other words, no gerrymandering. In other words, right. don't get into the business of, moving a whole lot of people around from one district to another if they don't need to be moved. So, yep. so from the lawyers, to, from the speaker and the Senate president, if you decide to adopt this least change, we offered this other alternative. And this other alternative moved five small towns in the, from the first district to the second district. And it actually moved three of the five towns that was in the experts map. It moved New Hampton, it moved Albany, it moved New Hampton and, uh, and Campton. Right. And, and um, the only difference was um, the leadership's map also moved the town of Bartlett mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of these two other towns. And, and the leadership's population deviation was nine people. Now the expert got it down to one. Okay, that's great. But I'm, I can assure you, the court would have approved a redistricting, uh, you know, would have upheld Absolutely. a map with nine people difference between the Absolutely. two districts. You bet. So, and, and we know, we also know because of this, that, that that alternative, if you will, has been in their back pocket for months. This is not something some expert over in legislature came up with because they had to. No, they've always had They've always known what is the least change you have to make. Um, and one of the reasons I know that because um, the Democrats throughout the legislative process had said, you only need to move one town. Just move the town of Hampstead from the first district to the second district. Right. Uh, and, you, and you end up with 40 
it's population mm -hmm. deviation of 40. And I know the leadership looked at that and wanted to come up with an alternative to that because they didn't want to move Hampstead. Hampstead's mm -hmm. a very reliable Republican town. You know, right. Matt, Matt Mowers wants Hampstead. You know, right. Caroline Levitt wants Hampstead. You know, um, Gail Huff Brown wants Hampstead. You know, they don't want to give it to any customer. So, uh, yeah. so the leadership had had obviously been working out, well, what if? What if worst case scenario, we end up in a court and they look at trying to make no little change at all. Well, we don't want them to move Hampstead. Well, what else could they do? And this is this was their option. So, yeah. um, you know, so, that's what I meant by we didn't have to pay so the extra. Like, so, know? so some but kind of some kind of legislative peak, spelled yes. P I Q U E, the yes. peak, um, cost the taxpayers of New Hampshire maybe fifty thousand dollars for no good for no good reason. Absolutely, yes. Was this just was this just a result of a of a temper tantrum by a by a you know a a, a ultra conservative uh, right wing um, minority holding the majority of of uh, less conservative right-wing Republicans hostage to no, I, some idea? How, no. how did it come about that a reasonable, reasonable alternatives, which both sides probably could have agreed on yeah. and said and, and shown the people of New Hampshire, hey, we can work together. Hey. And usually and usually have over the past hundred years. These two yeah. districts have not changed very much. You represent as the second district. Correct. You know, I mean, you know that uh, these districts haven't changed much at all. Right. I think this was really, really about really about mixed messages. Right. Uh, and that is mixed messages in, in the Republican leadership of the state of New Hampshire, mm -hmm. meaning meaning. This legislative leadership, not just the House, the Senate as well, believed in their core that Governor Christensen wouldn't waste the opportunity Republicans had, even with a very narrow majority, to, to dramatically change those two districts and make it unlikely for Chris Pappas to ever be elected in the first district, hmm. that he would accept a map that did just that. And... Um, uh, and that's when we sort of got into the, the you mentioned peak, and it, I, I, it started with mixed messages, and then it became, you're right, it became about ego, because mm -hmm. you'll remember at one point, Sununu actually offered a proposal yeah. to change the two districts, yeah, and, it would have, and it would have made Chris Pappas' district more Republican, not as Republican as the leadership had wanted. And um, and its population deviation was something around like eight, nine hundred people. So um, that was the other thing the leadership seized upon. Uh, this might not withstand a challenge, but that's, that's not why they didn't like it. They didn't like it because Sununu wouldn't accept what they had proposed. And they didn't like it because there were a lot of high level discussions before redistricting ever began. And some of them involved people very close to this governor and there were there was every reason to believe and if you talk to the senate republican leadership and the house republican leadership that they felt they were getting all the signs from the governor's office yeah as long as it's not wackadoo meaning what's wackadoo is when you put them both together at the end like that that was just like i said that was just at that point it was all about ego at that point it was all about you know um 
well, we're going to make it, we're going to make it really bad, you know? Yeah. Uh, because governor won't play ball with us. And, um, um, and that will change. And by that, I mean this, if we'll see what the way, don't, don't ask me, you know, I only work here um, to predict what's going to happen in New Hampshire house. And it's five of the last six elections, it's changed parties. So yeah. if you're, if you're telling me, uh, Oh, I, I got a lock on, um, on the Republicans holding on to the house this November, don't take that to Vegas. Okay. I mean, right. cause you know, not unless you're getting very good odds. Because yeah. the odds are it's going to flip back to Democrat. I think it's possible the Republicans could hold. I mention all this simply because if it does hold, and if, thanks to redistricting, I might add, there are new House districts in the New Hampshire House, and they're more Republican than they were before, meaning there are more safer Republican seats in the New Hampshire House than there were in the past decade. So yeah. they, they, you get to 180 easier with this new redistricting of the New Hampshire House. You you really got to like 170 easier before. So yeah. as I say, that's that's 10 more. So I mentioned all this simply because I think uh, if they're all back in charge and Republicans are back in charge in January, February, they'll they'll do a congressional redistricting. And huh. and 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 um um then we'll be back yes, in court. No, and 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 I and my guess is it won't be dramatic. It may be more than five towns, but my guess is, but simply to say to the court, it's much. It's not your job. It's our job, and we're going to do our job. And here it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know. And um, um, and that will apply for the next eight years. Right. Know, but, then, but then there'll be challenges on constitutionality if yeah. the de- if the deviation is significant. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. Um, from a legal- the expert, yeah, the expert yeah. got it to one, and now right. you're you're at you're at you're at five hundred and fifty. So why and shouldn't so, we? You know. Yeah. And, and if if the legislature, like, I mean, if we spin that out and spin yeah. that, you know, yeah. go down that road. OK, so Republicans keep 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 control. They say to the court, um, you know, we're going to show you who's boss. They pass <laughs> a, another new map. It get their lawsuits prevail. It goes back to the court that has approved a a a map that has only a one person deviation between the districts. What do they think? I, you know, it's an exercise that's going to cost taxpayers in New Hampshire more money, more angst, more time, but sure. likely come up with the same result. Yeah, could. I mean, it could definitely. Yeah. Um, and and courts historically too. Once you know, uh, once they get involved, you know, look, read Claremont and, and yep. education funding. Once the yep. Supreme Court gets involved in an issue, they don't just walk away from it because, uh, well, we're taking it back. You know, the right. legislature says, well, we're taking it back. Well, you, it, like you said, it, be, it better be a good product or you may not get it back, yep. you know? So, let, you know, it looks like it, it, what's interesting is that, the, you know, there've been rumblings that um, the governor wants to run for president in 2024 and he's still on yep. the, he's still number nine on somebody's list of uh, likely right. candidates. And, right. Um, he's, he's raised a little controversy about whether he's pro-choice or pro-life with various statements, but it also doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of love lost between the governor and certainly 
some members of the New Hampshire House, including, uh, you know, those who are uh, call themselves um, conservative and who seem to be on the far right. And I, I think nothing illustrates that better than his veto of a bill. It was House Bill 275, which would have limited the governor's powers over declaring a state of emergency right. uh, and transferring some of those powers uh, to the legislature, which the governor called irresponsible. Um, and let's remember that he used the state of emergency power given to uh, declare um, an emergency over COVID. And yes. there, there were there was some controversy from both sides about his power and whether he was exercising it responsibly and what he was doing and how he was how he was how he was doing it. But this time with, with that veto, um, a Merrimack Republican representative, Melissa Blazek, call, started calling him names. She called she called the governor, quote, a deceitful man who was, quote, <laughs> drunk on his own power. Um, those are the kinds of that's the kind of name calling often reserved for members of the other party. What is what does that tell us about the governor's relationship in his own party? Yeah, I think it's um, it is the end of a, uh, a difficult session. Um, uh, I think one of the you know, as I pointed out in my weekly column, I mean, um, the governor had written a letter after signing the budget deal um, to Majority Leader uh, Jason Osborne, in which he said, I'm really open to making, you know, um, making a better framework in the future for dealing with states of emergency. I look forward to discussing this with you. And there were no discussions by this governor and the legislature about House Bill 275 until the governor issued his veto message of House Bill 275. That's what really honks off a lot of very conservative Republicans. They thought when they heard nothing from him about the bill, okay, I guess he sees this as a better framework. Like we, he said he would work with us on, but um, as uh, he said, you know, the irresponsible part of the bill, in his view, is it would only allow a governor to extend a state of emergency for, on three occasions. Now, you can only do it for three weeks under the current state law. And this would then allow you only to have a state of emergency in the governor's control for nine weeks. Well, that wouldn't have worked, right, during COVID, right? I mean, the legislature was out. Businesses were closed. The economy was shut down. You know, we'd, we're not likely to have one of those states of emergency anytime soon. But um, that's what he means by irresponsible. That, that right. simply was too yeah. Uh, yeah. short. I mean, it, right. and it's worth noting, and it and it was the case even before COVID. I might have 30 seconds left. That any state of emergency a governor declares can be taken away by the legislature on a majority vote the House of Senate. They can they can cancel that state of emergency if as as majority they feel no we don't want this anymore or yeah. it shouldn't happen in the first place. It's really not a state of emergency. I'll just leave that discussion Kevin with this statement by a conservative Republican who said 
This is the pattern of a scoundrel consistent <laughs> with his lust for power that he exhibited during the state of emergency when he unconstitutionally controlled the lives of everyone in this state. So we've got a governor who doesn't always uh, follow the dictates of the most conservative of his party. And maybe that's uh, something he really believes. Maybe it's uh, trying to position himself politically because um, there were a couple of other interesting bills that um, came across his desk before things wrapped up. Um, one of them was his veto of legislation uh, that would have placed a ban on requiring students or the public to wear face coverings while inside public schools. Now, so COVID has been has has been with us now for more than two years. It's been up. It's been down. It's been in and out with various um, various uh, strains of COVID. Most recently, Omicron, which was a huge surge. Now things are moving outside, and we hope people will be safe. We hope people are being vaccinated. We hope people are being boosted because that saves lives. But meanwhile there's been a lot of angst in our public schools about whether students and teachers and visitors and others should or shouldn't be masked. We have a, 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 a tradition in New Hampshire of local control of schools, which the governor cited when he said, calling it big government and one size fits all approach. But the, the anti-maskers, who are often the anti-vaxxers, see it as um, a kind of freedom question, a freedom to <laughs> freedom to live free and die um, if, if you're not wearing masks. And the governor didn't join that, that side of this argument. He said it's up to local schools to decide whether or not they want uh, people to, to be masked. There are countervailing arguments actually that go far in the other direction that say, you know, the state ought to be um, telling people um, with good health guidance that the state gets from the feds, uh, everybody mask up. Uh, the governor seems to be trying to, to play a, a play, you know, stand on the ridge and not yes. fall over either side. What's your thought? Yeah, I think that's true, Paul. I think, and I do think he thinks that's where most of New Hampshire is, that um, not, uh, that we, that we do all have COVID fatigue and that, uh, so we want government not to over-regulate us now as we try to get back to the, whatever the, this normal is, whether it's new normal, the old normal, whatever. Um, and, um, but there is certainly a segment of very freedom-loving, um, libertarian-minded Republicans in the legislature. It's not a tiny number either. It's kind of you know, it's it's it, it's in the dozens. I'd say it's, it's I'd say it's at least fifty to seventy-five Republicans are uh -huh. you know who who feel either this governor did too much early on in COVID and who feel. Um, He's he's still to your point. He's still listening to experts instead of just um, letting things um, 
be free, you know, um, and as free as possible. So, Too much uh, science. Too much science. Right, right. And um, um, as I say, I think, I think the governor thinks we're in the middle. I think that's, I think he does believe it contributes to why his handling of COVID remains very solidly positive for him. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't see that changing. Uh, and that's why I, I, I think a, I politically, he won't say this, but I mean, politically, I know he, he believes a veto like this is good for him. You know, um, that, um, that if there are, he likes, I, and I think part of him likes this foil of very, very conservative Republicans who think he doesn't go far enough, that, that it helps him with independence. So, you know, because um, if he's pissing them off, then uh, these, a lot of these independent voters are saying, you know, that's what I want my governor to do, is, is piss off people at both extremes. You know, so the rest of us in the middle are getting the government we deserve, you know. That's that's interesting because you know if we now let's turn on yeah. on that very question to this is, issue of um, pro-choice or mm-hmm. anti-choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I refuse to call it pro-life; it's pro-choice or anti-choice. Um, but the governor um, vet, uh, uh, did some interesting in, interesting action first. He vetoed a bill that would repeal the prohibition on entering or remaining on a public sidewalk adjacent yes. to a reproductive health care facility. So there have been these buffer zones. The legislature tried to get rid of the buffer zone um, and the governor vetoed that um, really, uh, which, which is, you know, it, it's interesting, especially in light of where we're going on Roe v. Wade. Uh, and all these issues, um, which now seem to be coming back to the state. So he kept the buffer zones in place. And he signed into law um, two exceptions, essentially, to this abortion ban. Um, Remember, folks in New Hampshire, uh, this legislature and the governor allowed a 24-week abortion ban, no exceptions, the first time ever there'd been any kind of abortion ban in New Hampshire, taking away the woman, a woman's right to determine her own health care, her own reproductive health care, taking away a woman's right to choose. But he signed into law uh, an exception to that absolute 24-week abortion ban right. for fatal fetal anomalies. Yeah. And there'd also been a requirement in this law that um, uh, required everybody seeking abortion care to undergo an ultrasound at every stage of the pregnancy. Right. And this was terribly, inf- it's, it, it's, it's beyond comprehension as to how invasive uh, of a woman's right uh, to her own bodily integrity uh, that, that was, because these ultrasounds had to be vaginal ultrasounds. This was, this was, a right-wing legislature run amok. Now, in the midst of all this, the governor had always... Yeah, I was just going to say, there's only only five states in the country where 
an ultrasound is required at every stage of pregnancy. Believe yeah, I mean, so so that no, put yeah, us in that put us yeah. in the minority. <laughs> it put us in exalted company yeah. of 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 crazy right wing restrictions on a woman's right to choose. So the governor has always said that he was pro choice. That he likes to he likes to say he was pro choice. The the Democrats have been making hay over the fact that he signed this budget with the abortion ban saying, well, uh, what could I do? I couldn't veto the budget when, in fact, he had vetoed Democratic budgets in the past. And then he was caught in some uh, statement of his of his on national radio or national podcast saying, I've done more for the pro-life movement than anybody. So where is he? What is he? Who is he? What does he really believe? Does he is he does he have principles or is this all just political expediency for this governor? Yeah, um, all good questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think even going back to um, going back to 2016, he signed a letter to Ovid Lamontang, of course, was a two-time nominee for governor, very conservative Republican, big leader in the anti-abortion movement. When he was first running for governor, Chris Nunez signed this letter and said, these are the things I will do for anti-abortion supporters in the state. And, um, um, and one of them was to get rid of this buffer zone. And um, by the way, and um, and a few other things dealing with adoption and 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 also a, a late term, a ban on late term abortions. This was in this letter. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, so some of the things he's accomplished, some of the things he's changed on, and he's he's changed his mind about the buffer zone. And one of the reasons he changed his mind is because there really is no buffer zone, and that's what he said in the veto message. And it's true, which is all of these abortion clinics have actually been very receptive to protesters. And I don't mean they welcome them. I just mean, there's, it's not like there's a line 25 feet from the door from every abortion clinic that says, you shall not cross this or the Manchester PD will be here in 10 minutes. Yeah. There isn't, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just, there's just, there's a sign up front that basically says, don't harass people, you know, and, um, um, and please be respectful and, and that sort of, thing. and that's it. And, and so, um, there haven't been lawsuits about these buffer zones. There haven't been, in other words, anti-abortion groups going to court saying these things are too restrictive or they're too draconian, or as they did in the state of Massachusetts, they're unconstitutional. A federal judge in Massachusetts ruled the Massachusetts buffer zone was unconstitutional. Now that was a little bigger. I think it's 50 feet. And, um, and there was some, the Massachusetts law had, uh, also had some language in it that isn't in our law, which really dealt with vocal protests of selling abortion clinics, you know, uh -huh. as, as in limits on vocal protests. And, and that's really where the judge came down was, you know, you can't, that's free speech, you know, as long as people can conduct their business inside the building and, you know, that you're not making so much noise that it's impossible for them to do their job, then uh, we're not, any law that tries to limit that uh, would run afoul of that. Um, um, but um, uh, so 
he's consistently said even before he became governor that he felt um, that there haven't been abortions done after six months in New Hampshire for decades of any type, you know? Yeah. Um, and so if there haven't been, then, you know, what's wrong with putting that ban into statute if the behavior hasn't been happening? In other words, we're not restricting yeah. a reproductive right if nobody's exercising it and nobody's wanted it past that point and no doctor has been willing to do it. So, um, I don't but, think that goes too. I don't think that goes too far with those who are who are looking at the Supreme Court and thinking about right. where where the yes. law ought to be on women's reproductive rights. Right, right, and and this, as you alluded to, I mean, this is, and I that's what I'm tr trying to say with this letter in 2016. This this governor has a checkered past when yeah. it comes to the issue of abortion. Remember. On the executive council, he voted against family planning contracts. Like yeah. John Kerry said, I, I, I was, I was for those before I was against those. I mean, yeah. and that's that's his record in, on family planning and Planned Parenthood as a counselor for them, right. then yeah. against them. Then yeah. when he realized there are no other providers willing to do this job and do it as well as they do it, then again for them and for them ever since. And as tried gently to browbeat the Republican-led executive council to approve the contracts for family planning for providers, the three, three providers that perform abortions, and he can't get them to do it. I mean, and that's, I mean, some of, you know, some of this is, you know, a Republican, a popular Republican governor trying to function in a party that is decidedly anti-abortion. I mean, remember now, Okay. This governor signed those laws, getting those two exceptions. This legislature would not give him what he wanted in changes to this law. He wants exceptions for rape and incest. They wouldn't give it him. He wants repeal of these criminal penalties, even for doctors who entertained an abortion after six months. He just thinks it's a bad look for the state of New Hampshire to have a criminal penalty against a doctor, whether they're gonna do the procedure or not. This is the only statute um, where there is literally the only statute that prescribes a criminal penalty for a doctor doing a procedure. He wanted that done away with. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give it to him. Yeah. You know, and it was only because of these incredibly tragic and poignant stories from women talking about their pregnancies and um, in which very late in the game being told um, uh, your baby's not gonna survive outside the womb because of the condition yeah. uh, he or she has. And um, that the legislature changed their mind because early on in the session, they wouldn't they would not approve an exception for fatal fetal anomalies. They would not. And it was only when these, these women came to the state Senate and poured their hearts out that, um, that things began to change and did change. So that's kind of what I'm, um, you, you know, know it's, it's kind of what I'm saying is that he certainly is, he, uh, I don't get, I'm not a big fan of, you know, I'm decidedly pro-choice. I'm decidedly pro-life. There's a lot of people who are are really conflicted about this issue, um, right. you know. And and he's certainly one of them. 
and uh, yeah. and and um and I think um and and that's why I I fully expect on this issue for him to continue to evolve, you know. Well, you know, it, it looks like Roe is going to fall. It looks yeah. like the Supreme Court is going to take it away. The action is going to co- come back to the states. Yes. And yes, uh, this issue is not going away. It's not going away for the governor. And, you know, as, as you were talking about, I think, uh, earlier on in the show, in our first yeah. segment, yeah. that the New Hampshire House may may very well flip. Uh, although on a national level, folks are talking about how challenging the environment is nationally for yes. Democrats. Yeah. The conduct of the of the very conservative New Hampshire legislature, which seems to be controlled by essentially a a um, a free stater libertarian, you know, false libertarian free stater takeover of the New Hampshire legislature, which have seems to be acting, in my judgment, ideologically as opposed to by common sense, may very well have tried the patience of New Hampshire voters enough. And then when you when New Hampshire, you know, whether New Hampshire voters are going to going to consider the these these recent changes or just remember, hey, he's the governor who allowed an abortion ban to go in, in into effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 hard. It's 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 difficult to tell, and whether or not yeah. Tom Sherman can mount enough of a campaign to really hold Sununu's feet to the fire, and whether or not this is the issue that will be a deciding issue for voters in New Hampshire. All all is open. All is open to to speculation. We we just we won't know, uh, and it, and frankly, it's hard to predict whether or not uh, these issues, which people consider, you know, this is sort of the defining a defining social issue of our time, and it's become even more more so given what is happening in the country, which I see as a misogynist white supremacist backlash. Uh, including um, a reassertion of a patriarchy which wants to control women. Now, how that's viewed in the state and how voters um, will will see it, it remains to be seen. You know, there's I want to move to one other um, interesting, interesting piece of legislation. Um, Obviously, uh, uh, the the other um, issue uh, of the moment and of our time that has been with us for far too long um, is this is the issue of gun control. Yes. New Hampshire has among the most lax um, gun um, regulation uh, in in the country. Um, surprisingly, while most people think we are um, a a safe state. Our homicide rate with with weapons, with guns, is actually um, much higher uh, than the homicide rates of our neighbors. Um, so guns guns is a hot button issue in mm. in New Hampshire. We have a tradition of hunting. Um, uh, we generally like to consider ourselves a responsible uh, state of gun ownership. Um, you know, and I I know around the time of the George Floyd. 
protests. There were uh, people with don't tread on me and open carry and yeah. handguns and long guns and camo and vests, bulletproof vests parading around the state house to protest. The protesters, a kind of scary, scary sight. I remember back when I was in Congress around the health care debate, um, uh, there were people showing up fully armed. Um, and it's it's intimidating, but not yes. necessarily illegal. In light of all of that in New Hampshire and the recent mass killings uh, just seem to be endless now and accelerating, um, the House passed a bill that actually was a gun control bill saying that a full automatic rifle shall not be used at any time um, nor shall a semi-automatic rifle be used to which is attached a magazine or clip holding more than six cartridges, nor shall a full metal, metal jacketed case bullet be used. Um, a semi-automatic could be used provided is loaded with more, no more than six rounds of ammunition. Um, th these were, des were designed as bills for a fish and game. Um, but they're actually, this, this bill seems to be in the first kind of gun control bill in my recollection, uh, because it is talking about uh, limiting high-capacity magazines, um, not allowing a full automatic rifle to be used. Um, what's your take? Yeah, I think, um, um, I think there was um, a desire to... Um, to just spell out exactly uh, the limits on um, ammunition. I, they, um, they're, most of what they, most of the limits they, they, came, they prescribe in there are, are not, in other words, there aren't weapons sold that permit more cartridges than are spelled out in that limit. Do you follow, if you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so, um, so I think there was, uh, there certainly wasn't any opposition to, um, to placing a limit that doesn't affect what's now being sold, you know? Yeah. Um, um, the, uh, um, it, this bill, I mean, it passed by a voice vote in both bodies. Um, uh, in, the, in other words, the, so one thing this bill did, okay, is that um, this bill allows a semi-automatic rifle to be used to shoot at game. And right now you, you can't use a semi-automatic rifle. So, um, so it's not a gun control bill. Well, it's, not, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly, a, it's a gun limiting bill, you know, it's in other words, no more than six rounds of ammunition at any time. And you can't, can't use a full sheet, full metal jacket. Um, uh, so um, they don't like to prescribe how many, <laughs> you know, yeah. how many rounds may be in a gun that may be used that may, but yeah. um but this is how this is. It's the push, you know, Kevin. We're going to have to end it here. Right. But yeah. it's the it's the push me pull you exactly of, gu of guns yeah. even in New Hampshire. Even in Folks, New Hampshire, this is 
Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We've been speaking with award-winning journalist Kevin Landrigan about some changes in the New Hampshire legislative landscape. We'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>